by Day podcast for the first week of July, 2017. Welcome to the Day by Day podcast with me, Siobhan. This week, we'll celebrate art and two little innovations that change the world. Follow the show on Twitter at Day by Day Podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. And email me at daybydaypodcast at gmail.com. And remember, you know, this piece of canvas is, is your creation, and you can do anything on here that you want to do. Anything. Anything. And the only prerequisite is it should make you happy. If it makes you happy, then it's good. Just give you a little bit of practice. Maybe there's a happy little evergreen that lives here. And we don't want him to get lonely, so we'll give him, we'll give him a little friend. Everybody needs a friend. It's July, and that means it's World Watercolor Month. This celebration was started last year by Charlie O'Shields, creator of DoodleWash.com. It is meant to inspire people with watercolor while raising awareness for the importance of art and creativity in the world. And it's meant for everyone. World Watercolor Month challenges artists of every skill level to 31 watercolors in 31 days. Just post your watercolor creations on social media using the hashtag WorldWatercolorMonth. If you really don't feel like picking up a paintbrush, you can simply share your favorite watercolor works of art. Watercolor painting is a painting method in which the paints are made from pigments suspended in a water-based solution. Watercolor is typically painted on paper or canvas, but it can be painted on wood, plastic, leather, or even fabric. The practice of watercolor painting is extremely old. Cave paintings consisting of pigment rubbed onto limestone with blood and water have been discovered that date back to at least 17,000 years old. Watercolor was used for manuscript illustration during Egyptian times. Its use as an art medium has continued since the Renaissance. Before photography, painting was the only way to capture images, so being able to paint accurate depictions was highly sought after. During the 18th century, among the elite and aristocratic classes, watercolor painting was a sign of a good education. Map makers, military officers, and engineers used it for its usefulness in depicting properties, terrain fortifications, field geology, and for illustrating public works or commissioned projects. Watercolor artists were commonly brought with the geological or archaeological expeditions to document discoveries in the Mediterranean, Asia, and the New World. These expeditions stimulated the demand for topographical painters who churned out memento paintings of famous places and sites along the Grand Tour to Italy. During the U.S. Civil War, Winslow Homer was embedded in the Union Army and did drawings on site. His true-to-life etchings, one showing an amputation on the battlefield, appeared in Harper's Magazine. Other artists who painted in watercolor included Vincent van Gogh, James Whistler, Georgia O'Keeffe, John James Audubon, and Paul Cezanne, just to name a few. Here are some tips if you'd like to try your hand at watercolor painting. While having several brushes to use is a great option, if you're only going to buy one brush, get a number eight round red sable watercolor brush. Next, add a number four brush and then a one inch flat brush. Most beginner watercolor paint sets have a nice variety of basic colors. 
Choose one with colors you think you'll need most. While you can paint on just about anything, if you're just starting out, try a paper with a weight of 140 or higher. As far as a palette, you don't need to get fancy. You can use something as simple as a plastic white plate. Find a glass, jar, or small bucket to hold fresh, clean water. Use two if possible. One for rinsing your brush between colors and one for clean water for painting. Tap water is usually fine. Hard water decreases paint solubility and flow. Overly softened water acts as a wetting agent and increases paint solubility and flow. If you're concerned, just use bottled water. Finally, a pencil, a kneaded eraser, some tissue, and an old towel or paper towels, and a couple of large metal clips for holding your watercolor paper to the board. That's all you need to start your adventures in watercolor painting. DoodleWash.com has partnered with the Dreaming Zebra Foundation, a charity that provides support so that children and young adults are given an equal opportunity to explore and develop their creativity in the arts. The Dreaming Zebra Foundation is unique in that they provide an art recycling program that is free to the public. Reusable art and music supplies that would otherwise be discarded, along with new or unsold materials, are donated by individuals and businesses and matched to recipients who have requested those materials for arts education purposes in communities around the world. Visit doodlewash.com for more information on the Dreaming Zebra Foundation and World Watercolor Month. Two, three, four, tell the people what she wore. It was an itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini that she wore for the first time in the day. An itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini, so in the locker she wanted to stay. Two, three, four, stick around, we'll tell you more. Bum, 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 bum. This Wednesday, July 5th, is the anniversary of the introduction of the bikini. On this day in 1946, the two-piece swimsuit was unveiled by Louis Riard at a popular swimming pool in Paris. Riard was originally an automobile engineer who took over his mother's lingerie business and became a fashion designer. Riard named the new swimwear Bikini in a nod to the atomic testing that was taking place in the Bikini Atoll which is located in the Marshall Islands. The bikini was not the first two-piece swimsuit for women. Earlier variations were typically more conservative, showing only a sliver of a woman's midriff and covering the navel. Earlier in 1946, another French designer, Jacques Heim, introduced the Atome, or Atom, which he advertised as the world's smallest bathing suit. It was also a two-piece swimsuit, but offered more coverage than Riard's bikini. Riard called his creation smaller than the smallest bathing suit. The bikini, considered risque and controversial for its time, revealed the navel and included only 30 inches of fabric. As an allusion to the headlines that he knew his swimsuit would generate, Riard printed newspaper type across the suit that Micheline Bernardini modeled on July 5th at the Piscine Molitor. Bernardini was an exotic dancer who received 50,000 fan letters following her appearance in the bikini. The fashion was slow to be adopted and even banned in many countries, including Spain and Italy in the early years. Actresses Raquel Welch and Brigitte Bardot are among a few who helped popularize the bikini. Today, it is globally a multi-billion dollar industry. Many popular variations of the bikini exist today, including the tankini. 
The most expensive swimsuit in the world is a bikini that is worth $30 million. It's designed by Susan Rosen and Steinmetz Diamonds. The bikini is made with more than 150 carats of D flawless diamonds, which are all set in platinum. I'll have a picture of this swimsuit, I use that term loosely, on the Day by Day Twitter feed. And check out the Day by Day Twitter feed also to see that original bikini modeled by Micheline Bernardini in 1946. Quagmire, we are on fire here. We are going to be the best thing since sliced bread. I'd like a sandwich, but I don't feel like eating two whole loaves of bread. This Friday, July 7th, is the anniversary of sliced bread. Like many everyday items, we often assume they have been around forever. Of course, bread has been in existence close to forever in loaf or roll form, but pre-sliced bread wasn't mass-produced until the invention of the bread slicing machine in 1928. And on July 7, 1928, the Chillicothe Baking Company in Chillicothe, Missouri sold the first slices of bread. Otto Frederick Rowetter invented the first loaf-at-a-time bread slicing machine, which also wrapped the bread. A prototype he built in 1912 was destroyed in a fire, and it wasn't until 1928 that Rowetter had a fully working machine ready, which was sold to and used by the Chillicothe Baking Company. I love the story of Otto Rowetter because he had sold the jewelry stores he owned in order to build that first prototype. When the fire destroyed that machine and the blueprints, he could have easily given up, but he persisted with his idea and eventually saw great success as he sold more machines to other bakeries. And Otto Rowetter himself celebrated his birthday on July 7th as well. On the day those first loaves of sliced bread were sold, he turned 48. At first, consumers were a bit confused and often put off by the sight of sliced bread. In the days before preservatives were added to bread, sliced bread dried out faster and didn't hold together well in its packaging. Otto Rowetter used U-shaped pins inside the bread to hold it together. One ad offered instructions for the confounded. Per the times, number one, open wrapper at one end. Number two, pull out the pen. Number three, remove as many slices as desired. By 1933, American bakeries produced more sliced than unsliced loaves of bread. Sliced bread was advertised as the greatest forward step in the baking industry since bread was wrapped. The saying, the greatest thing since sliced bread, is true. Before sliced bread, consumers had to cut or tear the bread themselves. Those pieces were not uniform in size or shape. It really was revolutionary to be able to consume bread so readily. In 1943, sliced bread was banned as a wartime conservation measure. At that time, one American housewife explained how important sliced bread was, and I'm sure she spoke for families across the country. I should like to let you know how important sliced bread is to the morale and saneness of a household. My husband and four children are all in a rush during and after breakfast. Without ready sliced bread, I must do the slicing for toast. Two pieces for each one, that's 10. For their lunches, I must cut by hand at least 20 slices for two sandwiches a piece. Afterward, I make my own toast. 22 slices of bread to be cut up in a hurry. 
So two months later, the ban was repealed, and the New York Times heralded its removal with the headline, Sliced Bread Put Back on Sale, Housewives Thumbs Safe Again. The ease of having another piece of perfectly sliced and sized bread increased the use of jams, jelly, butter, and other spreads. Surprisingly, the first pop-up toaster was invented before sliced bread, but sliced bread certainly boosted their sales. Today, sliced bread is a staple we take for granted. It comes in various sizes from extra thick to thin. It can be purchased with the crust or without the crust. And sliced bread is sold in many flavors and varieties, including wheat, rye, white, potato, and the list goes on. So when you have a sandwich this July 7th, be thankful you didn't have to cut those slices yourself. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And remember to follow the podcast on Twitter at daybydaypodcast and email daybydaypodcast at gmail.com. The podcast is also available on iTunes and SoundCloud, where you can listen to past episodes. If you're listening to the show through iTunes, please take a minute or two to leave a review. This will help other people be able to find the show easily. Let me know how you take part in any of these observances and if you know of any holidays that I should talk about. I'll be back next week. Until then, remember to make each day count. Thank you.